This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. For October, I decided to go with a theme that's a little bit supernatural, a little bit spooky for the Halloween season. In this series, The Devil Made Me Do It, I share stories where people claim to have committed murder while under Satan's influence. This week's case is particularly bizarre because it includes not one, but two instances of demonic possession. This was witnessed not only by multiple family members and friends, but also by Catholic priests and acclaimed paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. One of the alleged victims of demonic possession would commit a brutal and shocking murder for no apparent reason. Was this crime provoked by demonic forces or simply the result of a quick-to-anger young man whose temper caused him to do the unthinkable? This is Chapter 2 of The Devil Made Me Do It, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. Arnie Cheyenne Johnson grew up fast. His father left the family when he was just a baby. Perhaps for this reason, from a young age, the boy felt it was his responsibility to take care of others. This especially applied to the women in his family, his mother Mary, and later his two younger sisters, Janice and Wanda. His family and friends called him by his middle name, Cheyenne. Arnie had been his absentee father's name, and Mary chose her son's middle name because she was a fan of tall, dark, and handsome actor Clint Walker. Walker played the hero in a Western-themed television series titled Cheyenne. Arnie Cheyenne was neither tall nor dark. He was described as small, blonde, and fair-skinned. From the time he was a preteen, Cheyenne appeared older than his actual age due to his serious nature. Coming into his teen years in the late 1970s in Brookfield, Connecticut, Cheyenne wasn't of the long-haired rock band t-shirt-wearing variety of teen, but presented as clean-cut, polite, and like I mentioned, mature beyond his years. At the age of 12, Cheyenne was in a Brookfield supermarket when a pretty dark-haired teen knocked over a grocery display. Cheyenne, always quick to help out, ran over to help her pick up the spilled items. In that moment, the 12-year-old knew he'd met the girl he wanted to spend the rest of his life with. The only problem was, well, that he was 12. But to make things more unlikely, Deborah Glatzel was seven years his senior and already a high school graduate. As unlikely a pair as it would seem, Cheyenne and Debbie would end up together years later. Brookfield, a small town of 12,000, located an hour south of Hartford, Connecticut, is a close-knit community. Debbie Glatzel became friends with Cheyenne's mother, Mary. Mary and Debbie would sometimes take Cheyenne and his sisters on picnics and other outings. Debbie often brought along her three younger brothers. Cheyenne was thrilled to spend any time he could with the girl he'd fallen for instantly when he was just a boy. So when he was 16, he screwed up his courage and asked the now 23-year-old Debbie on a date. To his delight, she accepted, and soon they were inseparable. At about this time, Cheyenne dropped out of high school. He wanted to work and help his mother out with finances. He began taking whatever jobs he could find. Debbie was working as a housekeeper at a local Holiday Inn hotel. When Mary Johnson became ill and had to quit her job, Debbie moved in to help her boyfriend care for his mother and siblings. 
Together, she and Cheyenne worked, paid the bills, and helped raise his sisters. For all intents and purposes, Debbie and Cheyenne took over responsibility for the Johnson family and lived as if they were a married couple. Cheyenne even began referring to Debbie as his wife. Planning a future together, they talked of someday owning their own business. Their goal was to buy a little house and live in Brookfield, the town they'd both grown up in and thought of as a safe place to raise children. They dreamed of finding a cozy home in the country, just outside the town limits, to begin their life together. In the summer of 1980, Debbie believed she'd found their dream home. The little yellow house located in the woods off of Old Hollyville Road they thought was promising. Perhaps with a little bit of cleaning, Debbie and Cheyenne thought, it would be the perfect place for them. They needed a lot of help clearing out the abandoned house of old furniture and other items and cleaning it up before they officially moved in. So Debbie asked her brothers to help. She had four brothers. The youngest was 11-year-old David. A waterbed had been left behind in the home's master bedroom. The boys thought it was great fun for one of them to plop himself down on the water-filled mattress while the other took a turn bouncing off of it. The only one who wouldn't go near the bed was David. David was a bit of an introvert, and the others tried to get him to join in the fun, but he just shook his head and backed away, refusing to even touch the waterbed. His brothers just shrugged it off. But later that night, David told his family a strange and disturbing story. He'd been inside the master bedroom of the house, he said, looking at the waterbed. Suddenly, he felt himself being pushed, and he landed on top of the bed. He said a figure with dark eyes then materialized before him. He described this apparition as an old man wearing a torn plaid shirt and blue jeans. He offered David a single word of warning, beware, before disappearing. Later that day, after he'd returned home, the figure appeared again to David. This time he was, quote, burnt and black looking. David noticed the man was barefoot, but where there should have been feet, he had hooves. David ran into the kitchen where his mother Judy and siblings were gathered. Terrified, he told them about the man who had appeared at the rental house and how he had now followed him home. Judy, seeing the terror on her son's face, did her best to comfort him. But in the following days, David's behavior became alarming. He was constantly in fear of who he now referred to as the Beast Man. The boy would wake up screaming from night terrors. One night, hearing her son's cries, Judy ran to his room and witnessed David's body writhing and contorting on the bed. His hands clutched at his own throat as if he were being choked and could not get a breath. Within a few days, the Glatzel home became a house of horrors. David would sometimes appear perfectly normal and then moments later, let out blood-curdling screams. He said the beast man now came to him in the day as well. David's behavior during these incidents was now even more bizarre and disturbing. He would sometimes speak in words that were unintelligible, and other times would shout out profanities never uttered in their home before. David would also growl like an animal, speak in odd voices, and recite scriptures and passages from other texts he'd never read. He possessed superhuman strength during these outbursts. It took several of his family members to hold him down so he didn't hurt them or himself. David had become violent with family members, spitting and kicking at his mother, and even attempting to attack his grandmother with a knife. These bizarre episodes occurred so frequently that David's family was able to predict when one was about to begin. He would lower his eyes to his chest, his face would contort into a snarl, and when he lifted his head, only the whites of his eyes were visible. He often let out a, quote, hideous laugh. Other supernatural events were reported by David's family. 
they witnessed a toy dinosaur walking across the floor of its own accord. Plates levitated and furniture was thrown across the room by invisible hands. A cake in a pan floated up in the air so high that the frosting was left smeared on the ceiling once it clattered back onto the counter. Judy Glatzel said she right away believed her son had been taken over by some type of dark force or entity. She'd always been a believer in the supernatural and had even attended lectures conducted by self-described demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren. The Warrens lived in Monroe, Connecticut, not far from the Glatzels, but by 1980, they were known practically worldwide as paranormal investigators. In 1968, they took on an investigation of a supposedly haunted Raggedy Ann doll. The Warrens concluded that the doll was being inhabited by the spirit of a young girl named Annabelle Higgins. They eventually took possession of the haunted doll and placed it on display in their occult museum. But the Warrens' true claim to fame by that time was their investigation of the Amityville House in 1975. The Dutch colonial home, located at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, Long Island, became the murder site of six members of the DeFeo family in 1974. The DeFeo's eldest child, 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo, was quickly identified as the killer and tried and convicted of six counts of second-degree murder. In March of 2021, he died, still serving out his prison sentence. A little over a year later, the murder house on Ocean Avenue was purchased by George and Kathy Lutz. Within a month, the couple and their three children would flee the home, never to return, claiming that they had been terrorized by a paranormal presence that became increasingly violent towards the family. This case of alleged paranormal activity would become the basis for a best-selling book and blockbuster film, both titled The Amityville Horror. I covered that story on episode 106, The Amityville Horror House and Ron DeFeo. Ed and Lorraine Warren had also been consulted to investigate the Lutz's' claims of paranormal activity. They concluded that a demonic presence had taken over the home. Their reputation as experts on supernatural occurrences grew, and they became sought-after guests on television talk shows and embarked on a speaking tour. It was at one of these lectures that Judy Glatzel became familiar with their work as demonologists. Twelve days had passed since her son David first encountered the Beast, as the family now called it, since then, Judy said, they had been living in hell. She reached out to the Warrens, imploring them for help. They agreed to investigate. After traveling to Brookfield and observing David's behavior and other paranormal occurrences in the Glatzel home, the Warrens concluded that David had been taken over by a demonic presence. Eleven-year-old David Glatzel's family believed he was possessed by an evil entity they referred to as the Beast. The boy had been tormented, abused, and terrified by an unseen force for weeks. His mother Judy called paranormal experts Lorraine and Ed Warren to investigate. The Warrens reported that almost immediately upon meeting David, they observed a form they described as a gray-colored mist materialized next to the boy. They believed that this was a sure sign that a demon was present. They also reported hearing rapping noises underneath their feet while inside the home. They recorded poltergeist-like activity, objects like dishes and books moving of their own volition. They claimed to have witnessed David levitating off the ground. The Warrens concluded that young David was possessed by possibly dozens of demons. The final number they came up with was 43. We know there were 43 demons in the boy, Ed Warren said. We demanded names, and David gave us 43 names. Judy Glatzel was advised by the Warrens to contact the church 
to help fight the demons controlling her son. Priests from nearby St. Joseph's Parish were consulted. While the Bishop of Bridgeport declined any comment about what took place, the Warrens claimed that Catholic priests who were experts in exorcism rituals performed several deliverances, or what they referred to as lesser exorcisms. The Warrens would also claim that the priests themselves were harassed by demons because of their involvement with the case. Father Nicholas Greco, director of communications for the Bridgeport Diocese, told the media he could not comment, but did say that the bishop had not authorized a final exorcism. Father Greco told a reporter for the Washington Post, it was his understanding that the formal exorcism had been denied due to David's family's refusal to have their son undergo psychological testing first. Judy Glatzel countered this by saying she had taken David to a psychiatrist in Bridgeport. She said she'd been charged $75 an hour for the appointment, a steep price for her family to pay. The psychiatrist then recommended that other members of the Glatzel family also come in to be interviewed. Judy felt that the church should arrange for, and I assume cover the cost of, the psychological testing they required. They just want to stick needles into my kid, Judy huffed angrily. There's no way in hell they're going to do that. Cheyenne Johnson had been present ever since his girlfriend's little brother was first visited by the beast. He'd also witnessed rituals performed by the priests and the Warrens. Seeing the boy being tormented and always wanting to be of help, Johnson challenged the demons to possess him instead of David. Take me on, he shouted out. I'm not afraid of you. I'll fight you, he said. Both the Warrens and Cheyenne's girlfriend, Debbie, told him not to make such statements. He wanted to do what he could to help David, Debbie explained but she soon said she realized that challenging the entity had been foolish and dangerous. Not long afterwards, Cheyenne was driving home when he lost control of the car and crashed into a tree. He claimed that unseen hands had grabbed the steering wheel and forced the car off the road. When the Warrens learned about the car crash, they responded by calling the Brookfield Police Department. They wanted to make them aware of what was happening at the Glatzel home and warned them that both the Glatzel and Johnson families were in danger. Ed Warren commented that David's family didn't understand the power they were dealing with. Demons were no joke, and if they continued to provoke them, their lives could be in danger, he warned. The Warrens packed up their demon-fighting implements and returned home to write and speak about their latest investigation. Within a few months, a turn of events would make it their most well-known case since the Amityville haunting. Seven months had passed since the Glatzel family first encountered the beast. David continued to be tormented by something. Whether it was demons or some psychological issue was still being debated. He was experiencing the incidents less, but they hadn't ended altogether. His sister Debbie and Cheyenne never moved into the little house in the country where all the problems began. By then, Debbie had been offered a job by a newcomer to town, 40-year-old Ellen Bono. Bono had previously managed a plantation in Australia before moving to Florida where his sister lived. Bono's sister owned a chain of dog kennels, including one in Brookfield. He had moved to Connecticut six months earlier to manage Brookfield boarding kennels, living in an apartment above the business. Cheyenne often visited Debbie at the kennel where she'd been hired as a dog groomer. The couple had become friendly with her boss, Alan Bono. Both Cheyenne and Debbie dreamed of traveling the world someday and enjoyed listening to Bono's stories about his adventures. He loved to talk and appreciated having an audience. On February 16, 1981, Cheyenne called his employer to say he was ill 
and wouldn't be in that day. Later that morning, he showed up at the kennel to visit Debbie. Cheyenne's sisters, Wanda and Janice, were also at the kennel that day, watching Debbie groom dogs. They'd brought along their nine-year-old cousin, Mary. At noon, Ellen Bono invited the whole group to join him for lunch. They ended up at a local pub called the Mug and Munch. Bono ordered a couple of bottles of red wine, and Debbie and Cheyenne each had a glass, but the boss did most of the drinking. He was a bit of a heavy drinker. According to Cheyenne, when he came by the kennel, Bono was usually sitting upstairs in his apartment drinking beer or red wine, while Debbie managed the business. Bono joked that day at lunch that he was, quote, going to give up drinking next Saturday, Wanda recalled. After lunch, the group returned to the kennel. Bono had mentioned having a stereo that needed repair, and Cheyenne had offered to take a look at it. Wanda remembers Bono being very drunk by this point. When they went up to his apartment, he turned the television up extremely loud, annoying everyone. He also, for some reason, kept punching one fist into his other hand in a repetitive motion. Debbie finished her duties in the kennel and went upstairs to gather the girls from Bono's apartment. Cheyenne had finished fixing the stereo by then, and Bono now turned that up at full volume as well. Cheyenne, possibly having had enough of Debbie's inebriated boss, had just walked outside to wait for the girls. As Debbie began to follow her boyfriend out, Bono suddenly grabbed nine-year-old Mary and held on to her. It was not explained if he did this playfully or in some more nefarious way. Debbie grabbed Mary away from him. Cheyenne heard the commotion and returned inside to investigate. Cheyenne, angered, yelled at Bono. All of a sudden, it just broke. I can't explain it, Wanda would later say. He was like a stone. I couldn't budge him, Wanda said of Cheyenne. Debbie had stepped in between her boyfriend and her boss while Wanda attempted to pull Cheyenne back out of the apartment. Wanda said she then heard Cheyenne, quote, growling like an animal and saw a quick bright flash of something shiny in the air. Then all activity stopped and the apartment was deadly quiet, she said. Cheyenne calmly turned and walked out of the apartment. Bono, Wanda later testified, was left standing there punching his fist into his hand, at least for a moment. He then fell over onto his face and lay still on the ground. Wanda and Debbie just stood frozen for a moment, wondering what had just happened. What had happened was that Cheyenne had pulled a knife with a five-inch blade out of his pocket. It was one that he always carried with him and used for work. He'd stabbed Bono several times in quick succession. Investigators would later describe Bono's injuries as, quote, four or five tremendous wounds one of which had cut Bono open from his stomach to the base of his heart. Cheyenne Johnson then quietly dropped the knife and walked out of the apartment. He was last seen walking down the road toward the woods, his hands and clothing covered in Ellen Bono's blood. Bono would die later that day of his wounds. Cheyenne was found a short time later, still on foot, about two miles from the murder scene. He was arrested and held on $125,000 bail. The day after 19-year-old Arnie Cheyenne Johnson killed Alan Bono, the Brookfield Police Department received a call from Lorraine Warren. She'd been informed of the murder and the arrest of Cheyenne. She wanted to go on record that she'd warned the police seven months earlier something terrible might happen in connection with the David Glatzel case. She told the police chief that Cheyenne Johnson was possessed by a demon, and this was the likely reason he'd attacked his girlfriend's boss. The police had another, more simple theory of the murder— Johnson was a hot-tempered young man who was jealous of Bono's attentions towards his girlfriend, Debbie Glatzel. They'd gotten into a heated argument, 
and Johnson had reacted out of anger, stabbing Bono to death. But the media had already picked up the story of the so-called demon-possessed killer. Truth be told, it was pretty much handed to them. Ed and Lorraine Warren immediately began releasing statements to the press regarding their involvement in David Glatzel's possession by demons and the connection to Ellen Bono's murder by Johnson. The public was fascinated by the details of the so-called exorcisms and the paranormal activity reported in the Glatzel home. Reporters began referring to the upcoming trial as the Demon Murder Trial. Johnson was being defended pro bono by attorney Martin Manella. Manella was excited about the publicity the case was receiving and seemed to revel in the attention. He had their full attention upon announcing that his client would be pleading, quote, not guilty by virtue of possession. It would not be an insanity defense, Manella said, explaining that he planned to prove his client was not criminally responsible for the murder because he had been possessed by a demon at the time of the crime. You have to give the guy credit. Manella did his homework beforehand, traveling to the UK to consult with two attorneys who'd previously employed this strategy in the courtroom. But both times, it was used to introduce an insanity defense. Neither case ultimately went to trial, but were pleaded out. Manella fairly gushed when talking about the upcoming trial, which was a hot ticket in town. People clamored for the 70 seats available to watch the proceedings from inside the courtroom. Local hotel rooms were sold out, booked well in advance by those hoping to attend. Everyone is interested in this case, Manella told the press. We got calls from Switzerland, from England, everywhere. When I went to London, they recognized me on the street. All the top studios are interested in this. All the top producers. Of course, my position is that we won't talk until after the trial is over. My client is most important to me. End quote. It seemed everyone was hoping this case would turn out to be another Amityville. Everyone except the police department, that is. Brookfield Police Chief John Anderson, commenting on the fact that this was the first murder case in his town's history, said, quote, We couldn't have a simple, uncomplicated murder, oh no. Instead, everyone in the whole world converges on Brookfield, end quote. The trial began, perhaps appropriately, just before Halloween, on October 28, 1981. The prosecution made their case to the jury that it was simply a case of anger and alcohol that turned deadly. A waitress from the Mug and Munch testified that both Bono and Johnson had been drinking that day. She said she'd served three carafts of red wine to their table. The prosecution claimed that Alan Bono had made an obscene remark to Johnson's girlfriend. Other witnesses testified that while Cheyenne Johnson was normally polite and good-natured, he was also quick to anger and was extremely jealous when it came to his girlfriend, Debbie. An ambulance driver testified that Debbie Glitzel was standing with her father when he arrived at the crime scene. They were in the living room near Bono's body. The driver told the jury he heard Debbie say, Oh, Daddy, he didn't mean to do it. You know how he gets when he's drinking. As for Manella's not guilty by virtue of possession defense, that was shot down by the judge in pretrial motions. Judge Robert Callahan said that he would not allow such a defense to be employed because demonic possession would be impossible to prove and was, quote, unscientific and irrelevant. Manella had to pivot and instead presented a case for self-defense. Ed Warren, who was originally supposed to testify for the defense that Johnson was possessed, instead only took the stand as a character witness. He described the defendant as quiet and considerate and ended his short testimony by saying he found it very hard to believe Johnson could murder anyone. The moment the public had been waiting for came when Cheyenne Johnson took the stand in his own defense. He testified that Ellen Bono was drunk and started an argument. He claimed Bono had run at him with the knife, 
which he admitted belonged to him. He didn't explain how Bono had been in the possession of the knife or how he had been able to turn the tables and stab Bono to death. Nor did he say why he attacked him so brutally, practically slicing the man in half. Johnson said he didn't remember anything after Bono, quote, ran at me with a knife. Still, it took the jury 15 hours over three days to reach a verdict. On November 24, 1981, they convicted Arnie Cheyenne Johnson of first-degree manslaughter. The following month, he was sentenced to the maximum of 10 to 20 years in prison. Cheyenne Johnson was sent to the Connecticut Correctional Institute in Summers. While there, he completed his high school diploma and took college courses. He and Debbie married in January 1985. One year later, after serving four years behind bars, he was released on parole. The parole board cited his exemplary behavior while in prison and also had considered his mental health evaluation that concluded Johnson was mentally sound and posed no risk to society. He was, however, required to remain under the parole board's supervision for five years. Debbie, Judy Glatzel, and the Warrens continued to insist that Cheyenne was possessed by a demon when he committed his crime. Possession doesn't last 24 hours a day, Ed Warren explained. It comes quickly and leaves quickly. Arnie understands what happened to him. He now knows how to ward it off, and he won't be stupid enough to take on the devil again, end quote. Debbie was ready to testify at Cheyenne's trial, if she'd been allowed, that she'd witnessed at least five incidents of demonic possession of her boyfriend before the murder. The first time, Debbie later told a reporter, was when they returned to the little house in the country where the demon had made its first appearance. While in the house, Debbie said Cheyenne's eyes appeared to glaze over, and he behaved as if he was in a trance. He was just staring out of the window into the woods, she said, and she couldn't get his attention. Finally, he spoke. There he is, he said. The beast. There he is. She heard her boyfriend emit a low growl under his breath. He bared his teeth and continued staring straight ahead at some invisible entity. I knew right away what it was, Debbie said. She said she slapped Cheyenne to snap him out of the trance, but he didn't react. She did it again, and he finally seemed to return to normal. She told him that the demon had now, quote, gone into him, and he moaned, Oh my God. Oh no. Debbie also said she heard two distinctly separate voices coming from Cheyenne's mouth more than once. The last time was the day Alan Bono was killed. The alleged demonic possession of David Gletzel and the murder of Alan Bono was made into a television movie in 1983 titled The Demon Murder Case. It starred Andy Griffith, Cloris Leachman, and Kevin Bacon. While Cheyenne Johnson sat behind bars, Ed and Lorraine Warren traveled around the country speaking to studio audiences and filling lecture halls to share details of the Brookfield demon case. In 1983, Lorraine Warren co-authored a book with Gerald Brittle titled The Devil in Connecticut about the case. Profits from the book were shared with the Glatzel family. But in 2007, Carl Glatzel, one of Debbie's brothers, sued the book's authors after its re-release. 18 years old at the time of its first publication, Carl claimed the book had violated his privacy and caused him public ridicule. He insisted his brother David had never been possessed, but had a mental illness from which he had since recovered. 
It was his contention that the Warrens made up a story about demon possession as a get-rich-quick scheme at the expense of his family. He also claimed that the book singled him out in particular, making him out to be a villain. Quote, simply because I had a sane voice and knew the story was false from the beginning, end quote. Lorraine Warren, 80 years old at the time the lawsuit was filed, still maintained that David Glatzel had been possessed. The possession was investigated by the Catholic Church, who also determined the claim to be legitimate, according to Warren. It wasn't just Ed and I. The Catholic Church was involved, and there was tremendous documentation, she asserted. She said the Glatzel family had given their blessing for the book's publication because they wanted their story told. They had also signed a document stating that the details published in the book were accurate. It appears that the lawsuit was not taken up by the court after its filing. Whether some settlement was agreed to or it was dismissed by the court is not clear. Fast forward to 2021, and this case is still being portrayed in the media. The latest offering is a new release of the horror film franchise, The Conjuring, which revisits the Brookfield case. Released June 4th of this year, it's titled The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. And I swear, I didn't even know the movie existed before titling this series. It's just catchy. In it, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga play Ed and Lorraine Warren. Several members of the Gletzel family, including Carl and David, are also portrayed in the movie, as are Cheyenne and Debbie Johnson, who were hired as script consultants for the film. The film's first draft stuck closely to their account, but the final version that made it onto the screen took some creative license with the story. Fun fact, Lorraine Warren was a big fan of the Conjuring movies and worked as head consultant on all of the films. She died at the age of 92 in 2019. Ed Warren died in 2006. Debbie and Cheyenne Johnson remained together and had two sons and two grandsons as of 2014. Debbie worked as a certified nursing assistant, and Cheyenne held a position as a construction superintendent. Debbie remained friends with Lorraine Warren and is still a big believer in the paranormal. She's been a contributor to an online radio show, demonologytoday.com. One person who you might be surprised also became a believer in the supernatural was defense attorney Martin Manella. He is convinced that his client was driven to murder by demonic forces. Manella gave an interview to Lynn Darling of the Washington Post in 1981, in which he said he had no interest in the paranormal until he defended Cheyenne Johnson. He became a believer, he said, after considering all the evidence. First of all, he cites Ellen Bono's wounds. The wounds were too deep for them to be the work of human hands, he contends. However, the body was cremated before this evidence could be considered by the court. He also has a theory for why Alan Bono was chosen by the demon as the victim. Think about it, he says. What's the guy's name? Bono, right? And what kind of name is Bono? Italian, right? So what does Bono mean in Italian? It means good. And evil likes to destroy good. End quote. Manella concludes by saying, If you believe in God, you've got to believe in the devil. And what I saw in Arnie as a young guy has profoundly affected me the rest of my life. Manella, a lapsed Catholic, said he started attending Mass again once the trial concluded. Quote, There's a lot of crazy people out there that have contacted me to represent them with the same idea. The devil made me do it. But our case was based on fact, not fiction. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. So let me know. Do you believe someone can truly be possessed by an evil entity and murder while under its control? Or are these claims either figments of people's imaginations, hoaxes, or the product of some other logical explanation? Also, 
I'm too chicken to watch The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, the recent film release about this case. But if you've seen it, let me know what you think. Reach out to me on the Once Upon a Crime Facebook fan page or Twitter. Links to all our social media can be found on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Next week, I'll be releasing my annual Halloween special episode, complete with several creepy true crime stories. I've totally dialed up the creep factor this year, so tune in next week to experience a shiver or two while listening. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Research assistance and final sound mix for this episode was courtesy of Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another and stay spooky.